Last week, we started looking at different strategies to try to make prayer more meaningful, more relevant, <coughs> more experiential. And of course, we really just scratched the surface. Today, we're going to look at three, let's call them attitudes, towards prayer that I think are extremely helpful to making prayer more relevant. And the three that we're going to be looking at today are uh, a sense of, of appreciation and thanks. In other words, approaching prayer from that state of mind. Of approaching prayer from a, a true and sincere appreciation of being alive of being part of God's creation of having a relationship with God that's the first thing the second thing we'll look at is a critical teaching from the Baal Shem Tov about prayer and we'll call this a, an attitude of approaching prayer with the idea that this is an opportunity to really get close to God and experience something deep and meaningful. And the third attitude that we'll look at is something that we began to, to look at, but it's, it's such a deep Indian we just entered into it and today I want to add some some actual text from different teachings and that's the idea of the question that we asked that is a huge question is when we pray do we really think that we can change God's mind and I mentioned before that that this is such an important answer uh, question to answer in our own minds because if we don't think that what we're saying is going to have any effect so that kind of takes the winds out of the sail if someone believes that they're praying for health or sustenance or children or their soulmate or peace in the world, or whatever it is. And we have the attitude that either God decrees or He doesn't decree, and we can't hope to change His mind, or that our prayers um, don't really have an effect so yeah, so like no, but we could we could still approach prayer from 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 praise and thanksgiving and appreciation and experience, but when it gets down to the Shmona Esra, because the rest of prayer, we're not praying for specific things. We're acknowledging, we're praising, we're um, asserting. Let's say the Shema. We're asserting our belief that, that God is one. But it's only in the Shemona Esrei that we're actually asking for things. Okay, there's other 
whereas uh, Avinu Malkeinu. But still, the, the, the central one is the Amida. And so therefore, we could, we could approach prayer from many other aspects. But when we get to the Shmon Esrei, and there are many great, great Jewish uh, thinkers and philosophers and rabbis and sages that didn't really think that that's what we're doing when we're praying. We don't really think that we can change God's mind. That's what we talked about, self-education. We're really doubting to make ourselves aware that someone is sick. And we believe that if God wants them to be well, they're going to be well. And if they're going to be sick, they're going to be sick. And that God just doesn't change his mind. You know, five people are praying that it gets well. And two people, right, who should be praying as well aren't. So God makes an accounting and oh, it's five to two. And so therefore I'll change my whole, whole decree. So what we want to do today is look at some texts that show some very surprising ideas in the Gemara about changing God's mind. But you have to be careful of this. We're not talking about changing God's mind as if God is fickle. What we're trying to understand is do our prayers really have an effect in the realm of divine providence? We're not saying that God decides this and then he changes his mind and he changes it back and then he changes it back but in the bigger picture do our prayers really mean something it's a very very important answer that each person has to decide for themselves what they think they're doing when they're praying so that, that will be the third thing we'll get to so we'll start with uh, giving thanks and the best place to start is to look at the name of what the Jewish people are called after. Even though last week's Parsha we learned that we're named Yisrael. And especially today when we have a state of Israel and we have Israelis, so the name Yisrael is... Uh, is very relevant today. Nonetheless, uh, we usually talk about the Jewish people. And in fact, this is a very current debate because tomorrow 40 countries are gathering near Washington to jumpstart the peace process again. I'm not going to get into, into politics, but one, the, the, the Arabs have many, many, many demands. And uh, the state of Israel has very few demands. And one of them is simply that Israel is, is accepted as a Jewish state, not as a, an Israeli state because everyone here who has citizenship is an Israeli whether they're Christian or Muslim or Druze or which is fine which is fine but in, in the inception of the state of Israel it was seen even by the secular 
as a Jewish homeland. So, why am I, I bringing this up? Because we are called Yehudim. We're called Jews, and that's from the name Yehuda. And Yehuda comes from when Leah thought she might only have three sons, and now she has a fourth son. So Yehuda represented like more than I could ever expect. And that's what she named him, Yehuda. She said, like, this time, um, my, what she was so concerned with what um, her husband thought, but this time, surely my, my husband will, will give praise and will understand I've given him a fourth son. That's, that's just a superficial level. But the point is, is that Yehuda is named from the word Lahodot, which means to acknowledge, to praise, to give thanks. And we are named after Yehuda. So this, this is very, a very simple understanding, but it's very, very important. Very, very important. And that's why all of the Sfirot perhaps the one that is the closest to understanding the the let's say the Pintalayid, the point of Jewishness in each one of us is the sphere of Hod. Because Yehuda comes from the root Hod. Lehodot. To give thanks comes from the sphere of Hod. And to praise, Tov Lahodot Lashem. And we are named after this aspect. And so, therefore, of all of the Sfirot, it's true we have Chachma, we have Bina, we have Dat, we have Chesed, we have Gevura. But perhaps of all of the Sfirot, it gets to the core of, of what a Jew is. It's, it's Hod. And knowing this, if you'll see here, so what is the first thing we say in the morning? Moda'ani. I give thanks. The very first thing that we say. Now everyone knows this concept of, you know, in, in the vernacular, if you get off on the right foot, or it says in the Gemara, everything goes after the opening. Everything goes after how you start something. So therefore, the way we start the day is thanking God. And my point is that this is not a coincidence that the rabbis of all of the statements or phrases or psukim that they could have chosen to begin the, the day, the first word is moga. Because that encapsulates more than anything a, a Jewish worldview. And so therefore I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this because this is a very, very important attitude to have about prayer. Because a lot of times we don't really know what attitude to have about prayer. 
other than the fact that we know that we're supposed to daven three times a day, and Shabbos four times, and Yom Kippur five times, and sometimes we, we, we do it, and especially when we're just getting up in the morning, and we're half bleary-eyed, so we're not really thinking, what attitude should I have towards prayer? It's more like, I have to pray. I believe I should pray. It's good to pray. But it doesn't mean that we're going to approach it from the way that it becomes a meaningful, deep experience. That's what we're trying to get to here. Right? That's what we're trying to understand. Is how can we approach prayer in a way that, that we'll get the most out of it? And this is on the assumption that we are going to pray. That's the. It's a, we're not trying to talk anyone into praying. We're talking to people who are praying. But now the question is, how do we make it more meaningful? And if there's someone, let's say that they're not praying, so what would turn? What attitude would turn them on that they would want to pray? To just sat down with the person we, we, we say this first we say this second we say this third we say this fourth and we have to do all this in 45 minutes right before everyone rushes off to work then um, you know, it's not going to be a big turn on that's for sure but if you can excite someone about an attitude about prayer a, a world view about prayer and that's that's a different story so here we see that we begin the day with the idea of thanking. And then every day, uh, every weekday, we have Mizmur Latoda. We have a psalm of thanksgiving. And as we learned in the first class, all of the prayers are corresponding to the sacrifices. When we pray and what we pray. And we already learned that this is a very, very important understanding of prayer that each and every person is doing the service of the Kohen in the temple. No one's doing it for us anymore. We are doing the service ourselves. So, therefore, each part of the service corresponds to a different part of the service. So here, there was a uh, sacrifice called the Thanksgiving sacrifice that, that people would bring. There was no obligation, but people would bring it. Uh, well, actually, uh, I'll, I'll retract that. That um, after four different incidences, people would bring a Thanksgiving offering. What I meant to say is a person could just voluntarily want to bring a thanksgiving offering because something wonderful happened in their lives. But there are four, and this is are the same reasons when we say the, the blessing, Hagomel. Now, today, we say a blessing, Hagomel, when four things happen to us. Either we were um, very sick and then we got better. We were in jail 
and we get out. We had some kind of a, a, a dangerous experience. experience. Um, and, and these are represented by flying. Today it's flying, but it was when you would go either across the desert or you would cross the sea. So t- people didn't fly them, but today we added we added flying. That's probably the one that most people do is after they take a trip, so they say Hagomel. So at the time of the temple, um, along with these experiences, we would bring an offering called the Thanksgiving offering. So here we say it every day. That's the interesting thing here. A gomel, depending on, on the person, you could say it once a year, once every five years. It, you know, it depends. We could say it. Some people go back and forth now, like every few weeks. <coughs> but the point is that the sages made it part of our daily offering, like our daily davening, which is very significant. Because we, we don't say a gomel every day, but we do say mizma latoda, a thanksgiving offering. And in this thanksgiving offering, it's, it's such a, uh, a joyous psalm. And this is where, of course, we have Ivdu at the Shemba Simcha, that we should serve God with, with joy. So this becomes an absolute critical point. An absolute critical point. Because there's two ways, not just to daven, but to experience life. But let's use the context of davening. One is, I say the words. I say the words, and let's say I, I'm even, I have a certain amount of kavana, I'm not thinking about something else. I say the words, but then there's the next psalm, and there's the next psalm, and there's the next psalm. I just, I just say the words and I go on. So that, the whole experience is one removed from us. We're saying words, but they're not eliciting feelings. They're not eliciting an inner soul movement. The second way of davening is, of course, it really does take our concentration. But as we say the words, whether it's Mizmolatoda, which is a joyous song, or it's Tachunun, where we're hitting our chest and we did this wrong, we did that wrong, or we're davening for someone to have a refuah, or we're davening for Yerushalayim, but that our words don't stand in between our mind and our heart, but they become the bridge. So my mind is saying all of these words, but the question is, do I feel anything? So the point is that when we daven, we we need to adopt a, an attitude of thanksgiving like from from go is we have to train ourselves that when I walk into shul and I'm davening that what I really feel is I really do want to thank God for another day 
I really do think it's a beautiful world. And that the words that I'm reading and I'm praising God about the beautiful world, it's something that I, I, I can appreciate right now, today. Because if not, it, it, as we all know, it becomes just total rote. And the more it becomes rote, the more frustrating it gets. The more frustrating it gets because there's just you want to experience something, you want to feel something. And it's not a question whether I want to fulfill my obligation. There I am, I'm in shul. And it's 6.30 in the morning. And I've made all this effort. But then it's like too many times we stop short of just taking the next step is like, okay, I'm here already, then I'm determined to make this meaningful. But then you could ask the question, well, what happens if I don't feel all that um, thankful? Okay, so this is something we all experience, because all, all of us go through hard times. People that we love are, are really in pain, or sick, or suffering and we feel it so we come to show and we're really not all that happy it's like we have problems and they're weighing on us but let's put that to the side that happens to everyone and that we have to kind of tough it through we can't have to tough it through but let's put that to the side and in general though we just have to ask ourselves, are we really happy to be alive or aren't we? Are we really thankful to God for the blessings in our lives or aren't we? And if we can ask, answer honestly, yeah, I really do appreciate this. So the idea is that prayer is a wonderful means to express it. If we would, if we would really grab the moment. We don't have to wait until the inspiration um, pours down upon us. If we would really think about it and, and maybe even give ourselves some musar as to like, I really am thankful for the blessings I have, but I have to admit I really don't express it all that much, right? I let these other things weigh upon me. And I let them overwhelm my basic, uh, sincere uh, wanting to thank God for what I have. So we all have to work on this. We really have to work on it so that when we say the words, we should be a little bit jumping out of our skin to, like... So should we, should we pray in English? Like if Hebrew is like Absolutely. a barrier? Absolutely. I mean, the thing is, because like, yeah. I remember like getting, like coming to the Moshav and like they didn't learn how to pray in Hebrew, I would be left in the dust. So I learned how to do everything in Hebrew. But, and then it was like, doing, what am I saying? But like the Tehillim, like the Tehillim is easier than the Tehillim. The Tehillim is much harder Hebrew. Tehillim is much harder. And so... But but doesn't like saying Tehillim in Hebrew? It has like this, it has a merit in its in and of itself because when you read the thing before the Tehillim, it the, says, no, there's no there's no doubt about it that the ideal is to 
is most certainly, without any question, is to be able to daven in the Hebrew. There's, it's like the difference between heaven and earth as far as a deeper meaning. But the question is, until I'm, I'm, I'm uh, comfortable with the Hebrew, until I know what I'm saying, until I can translate, until I can keep up, should I continue to try to do everything in Hebrew and not understand anything and just get more and more frustrated? Or should I do some of it in English? And certainly you should do some of it in English. Because it's very important that the prayer is, is meaningful. No, I mean, I'm not even yeah. talking about, I'm talking about the Sikhid and like, you know, all the stuff that's in mm-hmm. Tillam, mm-hmm. you know, that... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And it is, I, would, I would just qualify it, that a person should not give up the, the real desire and the willingness to do the hard work to become proficient in the Hebrew so that the davening can be in Hebrew. The question is, what do you do in the meantime? Someone is absolutely committed and is really learning, but it takes time. It absolutely takes time. So, if... But it doesn't feel like clear to me in the English. Like, it feels like... I don't know. It just doesn't. It feels very, like... Okay, so, like so, this is, this is every person. For some people... For some people, it, w- it is better to dive in Hebrew and hardly understand anything because that person, just that's, that's just kind of like their nature, is they're going to feel it's more authentic and it's more real and they would rather do that. Other people, it's, it's, really, a, it's really good advice to, um, to say in, in English. And that's why, uh, and we're not going to get into this now, but the, the rabbis have told us there are certain things that you do need to say in Hebrew. Birchat Konim. Konim. And they learn it all from Pesukim. They learn it all from verses, that there are certain things that need to be in Hebrew. Right? And, you're, and it's questionable if you're Yotzi, if you do it in another language. But there are other things that um, you, it's perfectly permissible to say in other languages. In fact, many times, many times, it's, it's, they'll even say, let's say, like, Hatarat Nadarim, before Rosh Hashanah. Right. So it's, it even says in the art scroll that it's, it's, it's better to read it in the English and understand what you're saying, because if you're reading in the Hebrew and you don't understand what you're saying, then it's a question whether you're Yossi. Because you're, you're trying to do something and you don't know what you're doing. So I'm saying, so every person is completely different. Every person is completely different as to, let's say, during the learning process, which, how much percentage should be in Hebrew and how much should be in English. But the point is, is that if Hebrew is a, an obstacle to meaningful prayer, mm-hmm. Not because it is an obstacle, but just because the person doesn't understand it sufficiently, then it's better to to pray as much as you can in English and have it touch you. Have you understand. Have it grow on you. 
have you uh, lived the experience? Because if you're reading a psalm about uh, you know the halalukas, all of the, the actual praising of Hashem, they're so beautiful. They're so beautiful. But you do really don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. So, so how much are you praising God? So like even if you said like Sefer to Helen in English, like that has the same effect as saying in Hebrew. It's it's not that it's the same effect. Hebrew is always better. Right. It's always better. But the question is, is for you. The question is, uh, what are you getting out of it? And if you're not getting anything, mm-hmm. and especially, um, I mean, there are many many people. That, that is why they, they can't come to shul because they know they don't know the Hebrew or even the English they don't even know where the services are and so they stay away because like I don't know what's going on I just, I just don't know what's going on so I'm just I'm not going to do it or if they're there and instead of it becoming a meaningful experience it's just like it was last year like Okay, I'm here, I'm doing my obligation as Rosh Hashanah. And again, I don't understand anything I'm saying. I don't know where they are. I don't know why I'm here. It's just not very encouraging to come to come more. And so so therefore this this idea of when you say the words, either the words in a sense can be an obstruction to experiencing anything. Or they can become the greatest vehicle. They can become the greatest vehicle. And if we would really uh, understand the prayers, that's what, we, that's what we said. We were learning different perspectives of prayer that, in, that, that the Kabbalah saw every letter, every word as essentially meaningful. It wasn't that there's just this general... Um, praises that we want to do every single word and every single letter has so so much meaning that they would turn their tefillot into Torah now they would study the prayers as if they were studying Gomorrah to get every nuance out of it so I'm just thinking of this because here it is Yigduat Hashem B'Simcha and I'm the saddest thing in the world. We say that in the morning with the longest faces in the world. But we say it so quickly, it, it doesn't register. It doesn't register that what it means is right now I should be serving God with joy. Not that David wrote it 3,000 years ago and the sages 2,000 years ago put it in our prayers and that's why I'm saying it. They put it there because every morning they wanted us to experience either with the Shem Simcha, serve God with joy. And this becomes absolutely the like bottom this is bottom line here. This is absolutely bottom line as to what we're gonna get out of prayer. And so therefore, just to sum this up, what I, what I'm saying is uh, a lot of times just having a word or a thought to cling to is the difference between making things meaningful and not meaningful. So here, like the key word is, is thanks. 
thanks and uh, appreciation. And while we're walking to shul, we should just think about this. Like, for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to be in shul. And this is an opportunity to really thank God for all the blessings in my life. And then all of a sudden, the words take on that meaning. So here we see we have two more. We see in the Shemona Esri itself, one of the places that we bow is at Modim Anachnulach. We are we gratefully thank you. And then uh, shortly after, all life praises you. So this is this is just a, a simple idea, really. But it it touches the core of what a Jew is. Because when we praise God, it opens up the, the, the deepest Jewish place in us. And here I'm talking again, not just mouthing the words, but one, one of the places sometimes the easiest is in hollow. Because one, we're saying hollow when it's, it's either Rosh Chodesh or a holiday. And so we're like, we're feeling a little bit elevated as it is. And there's singing, which is always critical for helping to feel the davening. And the whole message is hollow, is, is praise. And so sometimes when the whole congregation is singing together, we, we touch that place. We touch that place like, oh, it just feels so good to praise Hashem. And it feels natural. And the natural thing is because that is really what a Yehudi is about. And it's really what a Yehudi is about. So that's why I wanted to present this as a whole attitude towards dominating. Not that just we say moda and we say modim and we say mizmor latoda and we say all of the halalukas and pesuki Zimra. But we should see that, that, that those are not isolated um, prayers. That it's really part of a bigger uh, attitude that we should be having really about life. This goes back to what we said, the ani tefillah. I am prayer. That it should be that this filters down to my tippy toes. Does that mean I can feel it at every moment? No, we're human. We have our ups, we have our downs, we have our ins, we have our outs. But again, we're talking in general. Is this an attitude towards life that I'm working to accomplish? And I would propose that if we would uh, approach prayer like this, it would just feel so much better, so much lighter, and just so much easier. Because it's, it's really expressing what we need to express. 
And if we don't think we have what to thank God for, then we're in big trouble. Then we're like, like we're really, <laughs> we're really in big trouble. Okay, so that's the first attitude. The second attitude is one of the most important teachings of the Baal Shem Tov. And it, it comes as a Torah in Parsha Noah. And there's a book, a very popular book called Baal Shem Tov Ala Torah, where the students of the Baal Shem Tov, uh, well, it comes later, uh, arranged the book according to Parshiot. The Baal Shem didn't write anything himself. But in later generations, um, people who knew Hasidu well enough knew the different Torahs in the Baal Shem Tov on each parsha, and then just a matter of just putting them together in the book. So it's called the Baal, the Baal Shem Tov Al Torah. In the parsha of Noah, there is a huge section, around 80 pages, called Amud HaTefillah, the pillar of prayer. And in it are all, or I can't say all, but many of the things that the Baal Shem Tov taught about prayer. So why does it come in Parshat Noah? Because he leads it off from a verse in Noah. When God is instructing Noah on building the ark, it says like this. If anyone wants to look it up, it's sixth chapter the 16th verse it says so hard to teva make a window in the ark and finish it from above up to a cubit from the top and make an opening in the side of the uh, ark a bottom floor a second floor and a third floor you shall make it if you read the sentence and I mean it's good for engineers it's like it's instructions how to build the ark what what great drasha could you make on this so the Baal Shem Tov made a drasha. So he says like this. He reads it like this. So So first of all, he explains that the, the word for ark is teva. But teva also means a word. That's why an acronym in Hebrew is called Roshay Tevot. Mm-hmm. meaning the first letter of the tevot, of successive words. A teva means word. What does sohar mean? It's translated as a window. But sohar means to shine. So he reads it like this. He reads it, sohar ta'aseh l'teva, sh'tiyah ha'teva, sh'adam edaber b'torah tefillah matzir. He said that the words that a person says in Torah and prayer, they should shine. They should shine. Ki yesh because there is in every letter, 
olamot v'nishamot v'elokut because there is in every letter worlds, souls, and divinity. Va'olim umit kashrim umit yachadim zeimza, and they rise up, and they connect, and they unify one with the other. Meaning the letters. When you say words of tefillah with meaning and passion and love and kavana they shine and that shining is revealed in the worlds in souls and in divinity and they have the power to raise up to connect and to unify in elokut with God and then afterwards the individual letters unite and connect and they form words and afterwards we have the ability to make all kinds of unifications true unifications with God. And a person needs to include his soul or put his soul into every aspect of his prayer. From everything that we've said, and then all of the worlds are united as one the olim and rise up and listen what he says the simcha ad ein shiur and they they create a joy and a great pleasure that is beyond all description without boundaries with, with no way to count it without measure the joy and pleasure you can't even measure it and this is what it means a bottom floor a middle floor and an upper floor worlds souls divinity Dainu Olamot Nishamot Velakut. And then he says like this, this is what I was just teaching. He says, Sarich Lishmoa Bechal Teva Ma Shaomer. That you, a person needs to hear in the words what he's saying. So this can be understood as you shouldn't daven silently without moving your lips you know totally mentally but it means much more than that it's exactly what you're saying that you could say the words but not hear what you're saying because if you hear yourself saying Eve do it to Shem B'Simcha so if you're really hearing what you're saying then it's translated into immediate reality and you will feel the Simcha 
because the divine presence is called the world of speech. So this is the beginning of what's called Amura Tefillah. Now, just I mean, just to explain to you how important these words are. Many people have seen this book, the Hebrew letters, but the entire book is based on this teaching here. Doesn't that idea also come from the? Um, isn't it the teaching the Bosham Tov received from Mashiach? Yes, exactly. That's right here on the back. That's the the letter that he wrote to his brother-in-law explaining his experience with the Mashiach. The Mashiach explained to him the same thing about the letters. That every letter has worlds, souls, and divinity. And so therefore, this book basically takes that system and explains three of the aspects of the letter. There are more aspects, but the three aspects are the, the shape, the name and the number of each letter in the aspect of worlds, souls, and divinity. So in other words, the shape of the letter has a meaning in the world, the physical world, in the level of souls and the level of of godliness, of divinity. I I don't want to get into the, the, the details of the Hebrew letters now, but we're talking about attitudes. So what the Baal Shem Tov is, is expressing here, he's introducing prayer as a deep, immediate, unifying experience. That's what he's, he, he's saying here. He's saying that we should approach prayer and know that the words can elevate us, the words can connect us, and the words can help us unify. Now, it can elevate our own souls, but the Baal Shem is saying even more, it can elevate the whole world. It connects us with the people we're dominating with, which in itself is a beautiful thing. But it also helps connect all those energies, all those worlds. And the more we get into Kabbalah, it's making unifications. It is helping God's purpose of revealing His oneness and unity in the world. Now, so this is, we'll call this a mystical approach to prayer, but it doesn't have to be, you know, we're not talking about super Kabbalah here. The idea is just simply that the Baal Shem is saying prayer can be this kind of deep experience. And basically just saying, and and he says the secret is, is just put yourself into the words and let them shine. Let them shine. The more you know, okay, so the more connections you can make, the deeper the references, the richer the metaphors. But the Baal Shem was, was so much into the simple Jew just davening with his whole heart. Even though the Baal Shem knew all the Yehudim of the Arizal, but if given the choice, 
he would always choose a simple prayer with your whole heart and, and that you're, you are hearing what the words say and that you are one with them. That's the whole thing, that the words are there to elevate us, to connect us, and to unify with us. But we have to have that attitude. It, will not, it does not happen on its own. We have to approach the prayer with this kind of wanting prayer to be like this. For those of us who had, let's say, the great merit to Dhamma with Rav Shlomo, so we felt this. We really felt this. We would come to Shul, and it would be like, okay, you know, uh, yeah, put on your seat belts and, you know, get ready for blast off. But that's, but that's, we came with that attitude. We came with that attitude. But ask a very, very important question. Someone gave, gave so much of his life to teach us how to daven. Do we really think he wanted it to be dependent on him? He was trying to teach us how to daven whether he was there or he wasn't there. And the, but the problem was, the problem was when he was there, so everyone thought that this, these kind of heights and prayers is really only attainable when he's there. And so when he would leave, everyone would go back to their, their old standard way of dominating. But that's certainly not what he was trying to teach us. He was trying to teach us to carry it on. And so when he passed away, paradoxically, that's when it started happening. Yeah. Because, it, because he wasn't around to create it anymore, then all of a sudden people realized, oh, yeah. He, yeah, he really taught us something. He really taught us that we, we can do this. And this, uh, this, this happens a lot. You, you get your inspiration, let's say, from the tzaddik, but you also become dependent on him for that inspiration, which is good, but it's not, it's, it's not, all, it's not all good. So here the Baal Shem Tov is saying everyone can do it. But it, again, if we're just trying to remember a few key words, and when we go into Shabbos davening, like we're walking to Shul, either we could think, you know, this is, okay, I, I daven every Shabbos, and I daven in Shul, and it takes, you know, two and a half hours, and I'm, am I going to just, I'm going to tough it out, and because it's the right thing to do, and I believe in it, or am I walking to Shul, like, like, wow, oh, it's Shabbos, and I've, I've kind of been rushing through the davening all week, ah, oh, two and a half hours to really, really, like, kind of just get into the groove, all depends on on where we're coming from, and, and a lot of this is is we have to break ingrained um, habits because it doesn't matter what the davening is. If it's in the morning, it's where do I got to be? And if it's in the afternoon, I'm so burnt out from this day, I, I can't wait till I get home. So, so you're caught either way that you could does not approach prayer from this kind of a, a, a deep place. Or you're tired, or, like I said, you have so many different things on your mind 
But these are just very, very important keys. That's what we're saying. The, the bottom line is we're going to show up because we, we believe in it. And we, we, it's, we, we know it's the right thing to do. And we want to serve Hashem. And we want to be close to Hashem. But the problem is for too many people, it, it just doesn't turn out that way. So that, that's the whole point of this. In other words, if, you're right. That is why we're dominating. Because we believe that it's a very positive, wonderful thing to serve Hashem in this way. We don't understand every prayer. We don't have patience for everything. And we don't have concentration for everything. But in general, we're there because we really think this is a, like a good thing to do. But then the question becomes, does it stay just an obligation? Or are we trying to turn it into this really lofty spiritual experience? This was the, this was the message of the Baal Shem Tov. He came and, and he railed. He railed against rogue dominating. And he said, like, no, it's time for something new. Same words, right? Same words, same order, but it's time for something, a new approach to the same prayers. That's what he, that's what he brought. But the reality is, 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 for many people, it is a lot. It is too much. So, many, many people, who get different opinions, many people say, less is better than more. Less with, with real feeling and real understanding and uh, real sincerity is better than just trying to get it all in and not, not really feeling anything. Because it is helpful to, to know, like if you, if the whole congregation takes uh, 15 minutes to say Pesukit Zimra, but if you would say every word, it would take you half an hour. So you have to have a strategy. You have to have a strategy. Is these are the ones I say for right now. Hopefully I'll, I'll learn more. Or, or I'll find a minion that is more with my pace or more with my ruach. Now, if you're out in the country and you only have one minion, you don't have much of a choice, but most people, if they're in a city, they can, it's important to shop around until you find, uh, uh, even if it's not a community, it's most ideal with a community. Because then you feel close to the people and you feel a a camaraderie there and uh, a sharing and a friendship. Okay, let's see if it's not that, but still, there are some shows that will daven on Shabbos in two hours, and others that will take three hours, and and your speed is more than three hours. So, walk the extra 10-15 minutes to get to the other show, because it's it's worth it. Or the opposite. For many, many people, three hours is just too much I actually have more kavana if I can just be more focused. And that works for them, and that's fine. That's, that's, that's fine. It's not like how, you know, the longer you daven, by definition, the better it is. There's no cloud to that. 
many times it's true but it's not necessarily true okay now we want to get to the third attitude and that is and again right now I'm, 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 I'm now we're focusing in on Shemona Esra because what we said is, is true for Shemona Esra also it goes without saying to hear what you're saying and that it should be meaningful and deep but when we get to Shemona Esra it's uh, or especially Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur uh, do we feel that we are being heard and is our our opinion to God important so if if we don't think so much so we're really not going to put that much kavana into the Shemona Asra I mean we might as self knowledge but in, in a sense, there is this idea, but we know, we discuss this philosophically becomes problematic to really think I can change God's mind. So we proposed an idea that God's mind and decrees are not as set as we might think they are, and that since He wanted man to have free will, and He created man with free will that he adjusts his plan for each person according to a person's deed. So it's not so much that you're changing God's mind. It's divine providence is working simultaneously with free will, which is a huge paradox. But uh, that God is infinitely adjustable and gives us a little slack to make our decisions, make our, our mistakes, um, go off the derech, and if we go too far, he knows, you know, he knows when to like push us back, and he also knows when to let us fall off the cliff. <coughs> but that ultimately is going to um, help in the longer run. So we talked about it like that. So now I'm just going to introduce a number of different teachings that show very clearly in the Talmud a core belief that God wants us to, to assert ourselves and try to make this world the best that it can and not just accept that you know people are dying and, and, and there's 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 wars and there's people sick and we just accept it. it must be God's will. So again, it becomes very paradoxical because everything is God's will. But then we turn around and say, it's God's will that this world is in such a mess. I don't think that's that God's that's God's will. That's more a sum total of our our mistakes then it is God's will but then the God is still running the show God is moving everything towards a purpose towards a, a, a final conclusion so, so it says in the Torah after the golden calf 
So it says, "Viata hanichali v'yichar api behem v'achalim v'aseatchal legoy gadol." So God says to Moshe, "Now allow me, or please let me, and I and my anger will burn, and I will destroy them, and I will make a new nation from you." That's in the Torah. That's the text. So, I'm a Rabbi Abahu. Il malay mikrokatuv ifshar lomra. So he said, if the verse wouldn't say this the way it did, it would be impossible to say what I'm about to say. He said like this: Milamed, we learn from this. Shetaf so Moshe lakadosh baruchu. He said that Moshe, as it were, held on to God, like a person holds on to his friend, the big dog by his clothes. And Moshe said to God, Master of the world, I will not let go until you agree to forgive him. So Rabbi Abayu said, if the text itself wouldn't say this, we couldn't say such a thing. But the text says it. What does Rashi say? He doesn't bring the Rashi. Rashi says, it says, which means, let me. God says, let me, let my anger Allow me to let my anger burn and I will destroy them. So Rashi says like this, Moshe, <laughs> pretty smart, he understood in the language, why is God saying, let me? God, he understood that God was hinting to Moshe, if, if I don't let him, then he can't. If not, God wants to set it this way. So Rashi says that Moshe understood from this, well, what happens if I don't let him? Why is God saying, please let me, as if I have the power to do something about it? And so Rashi (laughs) says, therefore, yeah, Moshe understood from that, and he said, if you do this thing, wipe me out of your book. I will have nothing to do with this. And God said, okay, I won't destroy them. Okay, so, so they learn in the Gemara, they learn in the Gemara that not only, there's two levels here, not only was Moshe as it were, because it sounds like the text, God wants to destroy the people. But Moshe understood, that's not what God really wants here. Right? Doesn't really want. Yeah, he he really wanted a good reason not to. And Moshe, here I'm, I'm hinting to you, give me a good reason. And so Moshe does it, but the, the Gemara goes farther. If we want, but the text wouldn't say how, I, I wouldn't say, it, but Moshe grabs on to God as if grabbing onto a friend's garment, and says, "I won't let you go until you." Let me do this. So that's one, one text in the Gemara from Moed Katan. 
another verse from Shmuel is brought, and it's it's just not clear what is actually being said in the verse. So the, the Gemara says it means like this. The, 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 the verse is, The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and His word was upon my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. Ruler over man shall be the righteous, even he that ruleth through the fear of God. But because of the language in Hebrew, it was very unclear what was really being said here. So uh, Rabbi Abahu said it means this. The God of Israel said to me, David, the rock of Israel speaks. And he says, I rule man. Who rules me? It is the righteous. For I make a decree and he may annul it. Mm. It's a very famous teaching in the Gemara because it's the exact opposite of what you think. You would think a man makes a decree and God annuls it. This God's in charge. But the, the, the Talmud says God makes a decree and the righteous can annul it. So what's the, the, the implication for prayer? Even if it's a decree, we can annul it. Even if it's a decree. The question is, is it a decree written in stone? Or is it a decree that, in a sense, still can be changed? Okay, next we have a story which we could use in Eretz Yisrael now, of Choni Amagel and the rain. Okay, so everyone knows the story that, that there was no rain, people were really, really suffering, and they asked Choni if he would pray. And so he made a circle, that's where he gets his name, Amagel, means a circle. It's called Choni the Circle Maker. And he stood in the middle, and he said, I will not leave this place until you bring rain. And so the rain came like a flood. And like it was destroying everything. So Choni said, when I prayed for rain, I didn't, I didn't pray to destroy the world. And then it became a, a, like a, a sprinkle. And Choni said, that's not going to do it either. <laughs> yeah, right. We needed like, like this perfectly here, and it rained perfectly. So afterwards, the sages found out what he had done, and they, they, were, they were going to uh, um, excommunicate him. This is like holy chutzpah. But look what they said. It says, Shimon ben Shetach sent a message to him and said, Were it not that you are Choni, I would have placed you under the ban. For, oh, so he explains why. But then he says, But what shall I do unto you who acts with chutzpah before God and he grants your desire? as a son who acts with chutzpah before his father and he grants his desire. So in other words, he said, like, I, I can't argue that you produced. 
like, like, why God allowed you to get away with this, I don't know. But had let's say had you not been so successful, we would have excommunicated you. But what can we do? Is because you you say what you want, and God grants it to you. So these are all different Gomorrahs that are giving us a taste of what they wanted us to hear from us. Right? In other words, I believe what they're saying is that we have to believe that if I'm davening that someone is well, that it can actually have an effect. Because if not... It, it just it becomes a little bit of of, of, of a farce. And I'm dominating for this person again, but in the back of my mind is, if God wants this person sick, he's going to be sick. And if he wants him well, he's going to be well. I don't know what my prayers are. Okay, it's it her to say the words, so I'm saying the words, but I don't really believe it. So obviously he's not going to be dominating with his whole heart. Even, this, even if this whole thing is unconscious, right. and many times it is unconscious, yeah. it's not like we always spell these things out. But here on the other hand, if we believe that, no, maybe there is uh, a different way here. There's a beautiful song by uh, Peter Himmelman that, I don't know the exact circumstances, but his his brother apparently had a, a severely um, a crippled child, mentally, physically, just like really a bad scene. And he, he wrote this absolutely incredible song that um, you know, he's reaching out to his brother and trying to give him strength and um, some semblance of uh, hope and understanding. But the, the refrain is, um, God doesn't have to teach you this way. In other words, there's obviously some reason for all of this. But he's saying, my, like, my prayer is, uh, maybe you could teach him another way. And so that, that becomes an extremely important idea when we're, we're praying for someone to be well. Because the truth is, we don't know why the person is sick. It could be that this is the greatest atonement for this person. We really have no idea. But we do know that, that anytime we see pain or suffering, it's, it's part of the Jewish mission to try to alleviate that. So even if, if on one hand, it's like, okay, God has his reasons, and it's... it's, it's it's not happening for no reason. But it doesn't mean that the person has to die from this. It doesn't mean that the person has to suffer for years. God, can't you teach him another way? That becomes a very potent prayer. Or, perhaps it is a decree that cannot be changed. There are decrees that cannot be changed. Uh, the Rambam says it very clearly that, that at a certain point if a person has uh, done enough wrong and his example was Paro if a person has done enough wrong they lose their free will 
they lose their, their merits, they lose their, their right to exercise their free will. Free will is a privilege. And therefore the person becomes a, a channel for God's decrees in that sense. But we can also pray that whatever atonement this person needs, they can get it in one day of sickness and not a year. And then if it is a decree that cannot be changed, then it's, it's a potent prayer that the person uses the time that they have in the most productive way. So we don't, that's the thing, is we don't know, we don't know why things happen to people and why they're going through what they're going through and everyone has their challenge in life, everyone has their their pechalach that they have to schlep around with them. We have no idea why that is. We do know though that it's it's part of Jewish belief is, is, is tikkun and healing and to alleviate uh, pain and suffering and to be compassionate so either it's a decree that cannot be changed but some of the details important details maybe can be changed that the person can get the most out of it as we're told in the Gemara that uh, suffering is an atonement so if it's decreed that a person suffers then it becomes though are they going to benefit from the suffering or is it going to be almost suffering for suffering's sake and so a person can, can change dramatically can do tshuva can uh, uh, start all over again as a result of uh, terrible suffering and so there's many many different angles but it's all with the basic belief that it does matter and we should, we should understand that, that, that science has done many, many uh, studies in the last 25 years about the effect of prayer on different groups of people. If they know they're being prayed for. If they don't know they're being prayed for. And the, it's been written up in you know, many, many different places. No one claims to, to understand, especially scientists, but they have found that it, there's a rec- recordable difference in a study group that is being prayed for and a study group that is not being prayed for. This is, I mean, this is like a basic Jewish belief, but then we, we, we have to really believe it. And, and, and it gets hard when we don't think that our prayers are being answered. That's when it gets really hard. When a person prays for something and over and over and over again and it's not being answered that becomes a crucial test of whether we we give up or we just try and understand at least why it's not being answered and that could be as productive as if it was answered so anyways today we learned three different attitudes an attitude of thanksgiving and praise an attitude of, of looking at prayer as, as an opportunity for a deep spiritual experience 
and an attitude that my prayers make a difference. Just I don't I don't even know how, but a core belief that I believe that they make a difference. And then we approach prayer in a different way. So we should all have the bracha that that tefillah should really, really be a mind-opening, heart-opening, consciousness-expanding experience.